You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up. From Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And Yahweh threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah, and it was told to Joshua, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for Yahweh your God has given them into your hand. 
when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the caves where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And Yahweh gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it he left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and laid siege to it, and fought against it. And Yahweh gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him, went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it, and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king, and its towns, and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction, and every person in it. Then Joshua, and all Israel with him, turned back to Debir, and fought against it, and he captured it, with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword, and devoted to destruction every person in it, he left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as Yahweh God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because Yahweh God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him 
to the camp at Gilgal. What you know about that Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's that time again. It's time for the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. It's time to talk about everything. It's time to talk about the part of everything that pertains to this passage in the book of Joshua. Today is Tuesday, August 15th, 2023. That was Joshua chapter 10. This is episode 688. All of these are true facts, but let's do consider what we just read. The sun stands still. You think to yourself, how is that even possible? Right? That's not possible. That can't happen. This is See, that's why I can't take the Bible seriously. You Christians, I can't take you Christians seriously. Or at least you Christians who actually believe that the things that are written about in the Bible happened. I can't take you guys seriously because it's not physically possible. And What are the people who say those kinds of things? It's not physically possible. This couldn't have actually happened. What are they actually saying about God? On the one hand, you're right. It's not physically possible for this to happen. And the sun standing still is really not quite the right way to put it. Because, well, wait a second. Is the earth standing still? Is the earth ceasing to turn as it orbits the sun, what exactly is happening? What are you believing about the universe if you think this can just happen at all without everybody on earth dying? And to that, I say, what are you believing about God if you say this would be too hard for him? This would be too difficult. It goes back to that silly question of, can God make a boulder that is too heavy for he himself to lift it? It's the wrong kind of question. Is God powerful enough to rule and reign in the universe and suspend any and every law of the universe he wants to if he is powerful enough, authoritative enough to create it in the first place? That's really actually what's at stake here. The God who is able to speak And behold, this or that was created on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. If God is authoritative and powerful enough to speak and these things come to be out of nothing, ex nihilo, then God is also able to speak and to command and to say, pause. And he's able to selectively pause, to freeze time, as it were, with regards to the universe. Surely it must have been the entire universe, not just the sun, not just the earth, not just our galaxy, but the entire universe, the entire physical universe must have been paused. All the while, the people, at least in this situation, were allowed to complete this sequence, this interaction, this battle, this pursuit, not just pursuing, but overtaking, not just overtaking, but putting to the sword enemies, not first and foremost of Israel, but enemies 
of God. But it says here in several places that Yahweh fought for Israel. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. Israel fights for God. No, no. It says God fought for Israel. God fought for Israel. I like the quote from Abraham Lincoln when he's asked whether he believes that God is on the side of the Union or on the side of the Confederacy. He says, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And yet, there are apparently times where God is on someone's side. God does take sides. He took sides here in Joshua chapter 10. He was on Israel's side. He fought for Israel. It says it several times. And what were the results? Who wins? The side with God. If God is on your side, if God be for us, who can be against us, is also found in the scriptures. Not to belabor the point, but just to emphasize by way of repetition so that perhaps maybe we can begin to appreciate these things and be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus instead of conform to the pattern of this world. And what's worse, trying to conform the Bible to the pattern of this world. Here we have real war being waged. We have real battles being fought. We have real people fighting and dying and killing and being killed. These are not ideas, figments of the imagination. These are real flesh and blood people. And you say, that's wrong. And I say, says who? You say, but that's not fair. People are good. People are inherently good, except for the kind of people who go around killing other people. Clearly, it says thou shalt not kill in the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Well, no, it says thou shalt not murder. Murder is a kind of killing, but it's not all killing. All killing is not murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. What distinguishes between unjust killing and just killing is whether the person being killed is guilty. And in this case, first and foremost, these peoples, these nations are guilty before God. They've sinned against God. And you say, well, what did these people ever do to Israel? That's not the point. There may be an answer to that question that they actually did sin against Israel and all that, but that's not the point. The point is that they sinned against God and that we overlook that, that we pass right over it. We fly right over it, or it flies right over our heads, is most of our problem. That we don't think in terms of sinning against God or making peace with God or God making war against us sometimes and judging us at the worst, but disciplining and correcting us in his mercy, in his tenderness, his love for us, disciplining, correcting, giving us an opportunity, giving us time, but giving us an opportunity to confess, to repent, to turn from our sins, to seek his face, that we don't think in those terms. We think first and last in social terms, in economic terms, in psychological terms, in therapeutic terms. We think first and foremost in terms of the physical sciences and theology is relegated to the dusty, unkempt building next door. Meanwhile, every other study, every other subject is given the fancy, shiny, freshest, cleanest, best. The pride of place goes to literally 
any other science. And theology is perhaps an amusing companion to a glass of whiskey and a cigar in a well-lit library in the evening with a choice few, with only the holiest or the wealthiest, those with the most leisure time, present. Not the riffraff, not the unwashed masses, not those who would prefer a beer after a hard day's work. No, no. Theology is not for them. They need entertainment. They need movies filled with violence, but when they find violence in the Bible, and God is the one saying, this violence I command, and as a matter of fact, I will help you. I will not just tell you to do it. I will fight for you, and I will kill more of your enemy than you kill. How about that? What's so ironic and unfortunate and sad, really, for our sake, is we have movies and TV shows and music and books filled with sex and violence. And if it's someone else's idea, then we're willing to entertain and be entertained by the sex and the violence. When we come to the Bible and we find sex and violence as framed, as presented, as described, as characterized, as either affirmed or condemned by God, then we have a problem. Then we're upset. Why? Because at the core of our appetites, in the way that we have prioritized our affections, at the very core is we ourselves. And we don't fear God. And we don't love God. And we don't trust that God knows what's best. And so we clean it up for him. We clean up what he says about himself, what he has told his people to do and to not do. We clean it all up and we only present the sanitized version if we present it at all. If we get into it at all, we deal in euphemisms, we deal in niceties and platitudes, and we prefer the immaterial translations and interpretations of these things. And then we wonder why our practical application in the present is sorely wanting and malnourished. You could start with believing that God is God over the physical universe no less than he is God over your mental, emotional, spiritual health. You could start there. (laughs) When you make a God in your own image who is only concerned with your internal emotional state, don't be surprised when your theology fails to work itself out in anything approaching good works. What is the good work you are actually doing when all you're thinking about is what do I think and how do I feel? And that is spiritual. But what I would do with my hands, what I would do when I walk here or there, no, that's carnal, fleshly, corrupt, wicked. You know, it's struck me for a long time when I come to this passage in the New Testament that talks about the men praying with holy hands lifted. It's always struck me as uncomfortable that we would do that, that we would pray with our hands lifted up. It Honestly, it makes me uncomfortable and it shouldn't, but it does. And it's not how I was raised. But then why wasn't I raised to pray with hands raised? Why wasn't I raised myself? Why wasn't I trained up in that? Why didn't I see that? 
in churches growing up. Why don't we do that? It's strongly encouraged, at least, if not commanded, pray with your hands raised. We don't want to do it because we're concerned about other people seeing us, which is to say, also, we come to hard passages like this and we are reluctant to believe what we read because other people will see us. What I don't mean is because in Joshua chapter 10, the sun stands still, we should pray that God would cause the sun to stand still or the earth to stop rotating, revolving on its axis as it revolves around the sun. I don't mean that. And I don't mean we should take away a practical application here that we need to go and fight against certain cities and kill everybody in those cities. No, no. But then that fact of God having done this and our believing that God did this might just make us more bold, more strong, more courageous. Notice what Joshua tells to the elders of Israel when he tells them to put their foot on the necks of these five kings who were put in temporary storage in this cave. Roll big heavy stones in front of the mouth of the cave, put men as guard, and then continue pursuing the larger body of your enemy. We'll get back to these guys later. And then they do. And they have them get down, and they come near, and they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua says to them, verse 25, do not be afraid or dismayed. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, for thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And now let's come back to the New Testament for a moment, and let's remember we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities we do wrestle. Powers and principalities and the authorities in the heavenly places, the rulers over this present darkness, we do wrestle against them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Why? For thus Yahweh will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Do you not know we will judge angels? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Have a posture of restraint, gentleness, kindness, patience, but have a certain poise about you, which says, which communicates that you believe that the saints will judge the world, that we will judge angels. Bear that in mind. A lot of us are wholly unprepared, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, for the eschaton, and we are not warning people, in part because we're not prepared, and we don't actually believe that anything bad, terrible, horrible, rotten, regrettable, tragic, but ultimately just and fair and good is going to happen to those who are at enmity with God, who deny that they have any sin and lie, who refuse to repent, who refuse to turn away from their sins, who refuse to seek God's face while there is time. A lot of us don't believe anything bad is going to happen to them. For that matter, too, we can't conceive of ourselves, we ourselves being a part of judging them, declaring that they are not part of us. There's a mystery to what that actually is going to look like, I grant. But that it is said at all is totally beyond the pale for so many of us. And no, I don't think we should be hostile, aggressive, in a rough way, in a 
harsh way, but we should have a certain poise and we should judge matters pertaining to this life also. How much more so? Matters pertaining to this life, Paul says, because we will judge angels, because the saints will judge the world. It's interesting. One last thought on this passage, and then we'll move on to some current events items. It's interesting to me that you have here the men of Gibeon targeted by these five kings and their military forces. The reason is very simple. Gibeon joined with Israel, submitted to Israel, and by extension, submitted to Yahweh. These five kings are going to come against Gibeon and make them pay. You thought you'd get away with it, huh? You thought you would break rank? Yeah, we'll show you. We will show you, and we'll make an example of you. And it's the same kind of attitude that God is actually pronouncing, and he's going to do so far more effectively As you'll see, as you read through chapters like Joshua 10, that's the curious thing. If you read a couple of books by a certain Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm, Supernatural, you may find some things that you would differ with, and that's fine. But he makes some really, really interesting points. He shares some very interesting observations about what the MO or the persona or the jurisdiction was said to be for this or that God that was worshipped in Canaan or the surrounding lands in Egypt, but then also elsewhere, and how in context when God declares this or does that in relation to a idolatrous people, some of the backstory that is lost on most of us is that God is reclaiming titles, and statements of authority which have been co-opted by these demons, these demoni, these false gods. He's saying, no, 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 no. You're not God over that. I'm God over you and over that. And I'll show you and I will show my people Israel and I will show the nations that I am Yahweh God. Besides me, there is no other. That's all throughout the Old Testament in particular. Here we have these five kings seeking to make an example out of Gibeon, and they are marching on Gibeon. And what does Gibeon do? They call on Joshua, please do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And what's interesting is Joshua could have so easily said, yeah, you remember that time you lied to us? Remember that time you deceived us? You tricked us? You're on your own. Fight your own battles. He doesn't do that. The men of Gibeon ask for help and they get help. And God says, God says to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not fear them for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And you just have to realize, you have to appreciate something about military history, a forced march like that through the night, catching the enemy by surprise is a very effective way to scare the pants off your enemy, to demoralize them, throw them into a panic, whatever preparations they were making based on certain timelines because they thought they had more time. Now, 
they're partways through those preparations and they basically have to scuttle the plan that involved those preparations or their resting or their preparing for battle. And now it's time. Didn't see that coming, did you? Nope, sure didn't. I'm not ready. <laughs> time out. Ah, yeah, you know, time out. That's a great idea. God, can you please give us a timeout, but for the day-night cycles and pause the entire physical universe, save for us while we settle this? If you thought a forced march through the night was a scary thing, an unsettling thing, enough to make you want to quit the field of battle, run back to the hills, how about God pausing the universe? That's a great way to just be completely broken. But then that's the idea. God is asserting dominance and affirming his authority and also that this is his people. He fights for Israel. If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the big idea here. Don't take that out of context with the Lincoln quote. I think Lincoln had a great attitude there. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And therein lies another problem that we have in our day in America. We're still upset. We're still feeling the effects of faulty attitudes from the Civil War. Our last major war on American soil, the U.S. Civil War, both sides prayed to the same God, read the same Bible, sang the same hymns in many cases and killed each other by the tens of thousands on the fields of battle across our country. And if more had had the mindset before the war that we want to be on God's side, perhaps there would have been no civil war in the first place. In our day, we have people also wanting to enlist God because they recognize there's a great deal of power, even just in terms of the narrative, in terms of the psychological effect, there's a great deal of power in enlisting God to our side. Ah, see, God is for this or that or this other thing. And if it has no relation to what he has communicated, what he has demonstrated of his character, what he has commanded, what he's promised, stand well back. Don't get mixed up with those people. On the other hand, if what is being claimed actually checks out, And you should be a Berean about it. But if it actually checks out, you know what? That is consistent with who God has shown himself to be, who he is now, who he forever will be. Actually, that is obedience to his word. That is consistent with his promises. That is consistent with what he's called us to in holiness. How can it fail? How can it not succeed? If God be for us, who can be against us? Switching gears, though. I want to talk about Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas, which I just finished up this morning. And I will, rest assured, I will in this episode review Metaxas' book. But for now, before we get into that, I'll share with you a blog post over at bbcearth.com by Lucy Freeman, Teenage Elephants Need a Father Figure. Here we have a story relayed of young elephants, young male elephants in particular, in Palainsburg National Park, South Africa. 
young bull elephants who were the biggest, strongest, toughest, most aggressive creatures in the national park because when you are trying to populate a national park with elephants, who are the easiest elephants to transport? The females and the young elephants. So young bulls, young cows, but then as the young bulls grow, they reach sexual maturity, they'll get bigger, but you want them to get bigger after you have transported them because man alive, they are large creatures. They are big, big animals. The trouble came in this particular instance when between 15 and 18, young elephants turned into 15 to 18, 12 to 20 year old elephants, bull elephants, reaching sexual maturity, flooded with testosterone or whatever. They were in what's known as must. And it's basically like the elephant equivalent of the rut. And the problem was that these young bull elephants were running amok and they were damaging and doing violence against the park. Other animals, elephants, not so uncommon, will fight with rhinoceroses at watering holes. They'll get into a scrap. Ugly words are exchanged. Next thing you know, they're stepping outside the bar. But 50? (laughs) 50 mutilated rhino carcasses being discovered with wounds to the top of the shoulders and the neck? That's unusual. That's a scale of violence against rhinoceroses that is worrisome if you're trying to be a conservationist. You're trying to have a healthy ecosystem and make sure that not just elephants, but also rhinoceroses are going to be alive and well and healthy and on the earth for future generations to see, to enjoy, to observe, all that. Well, this problem was solved. It was a major problem, but the problem was solved with the introduction of entertainment, right? What these young teenage elephants needed was some good TV to watch. And so they brought in TVs and they said, hey, you know, check this out. Have you ever seen The Jungle Book? It's great. No, no, no. No, actually, it was video games. Video games really helped these elephants to get their aggression under control. What they really needed was Call of Duty. Hey, here you go. Can you manipulate this specially designed controller with your tusks and with your trunk? Can you can you move the... No, 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 that wasn't. That wasn't what it was. I know. I, it was the introduction of females, right? Ah, oh, these guys, they're just horny teenagers. You know what they need? They need more females. There's just clearly not enough females. They have too much time on their hands. We need to bring in females so that they're busy with the females instead of goring rhinoceroses in their sexual frustration. That'll that'll solve it. We just need more female elephants. And if we have more female elephants, then this will all settle down. You just watch. No? No. No. No, that, that wasn't it either. It wasn't that they lacked sufficient food or water or mating partners. It wasn't that they lacked entertainment. It wasn't even that they were bored per se. It was that they didn't have larger, more dominant 
more steady bull elephants to bring them to heel, to teach them how to behave. (laughs) And so what was done was the introduction of six large dominant bull elephants. And within hours, this roving gang of teenage bull elephants dropped out of must, settled down. The random acts of violence against other animals in the park stopped, problem solved. And the whole point of bringing this up, the whole point of bringing this to your attention is twofold. First, a word about so-called toxic masculinity. Do you know what toxic masculinity really is? On the one hand, it is feminism still relentlessly trying to wage a war of attrition against the last vestiges of male authority, dignity, honor in society, feeling threatened by even the smallest dose of masculine assertion. That's part of it. And so what is being called toxic masculinity in some cases is just masculinity. It's not toxic. What's actually toxic is the hostility to the masculinity. And that hostility is actually coming from a place of toxic femininity, truth be told. That's half the equation. The other half of the equation is young men who grew up without a large, dominant, steady bull elephant, so to speak, metaphorically, in the form of their father. So they are perpetually adolescents running amok, frustrated, violent, aggressive, easily perturbed, acting out, goring rhinoceroses in their community. What we are calling toxic masculinity in that case is a lot of insecure, undisciplined, lacking in self-control, listless, angry young men who want so badly to be affirmed. That's what they want. They want to be affirmed and they will get the affirmation one way or another. Come hell or high water, they will get theirs. They're going to get their brass ring. They'll show you, even if their way of trying to do so is wicked and dishonorable or absurd or silly or unproductive. You know, it's interesting to think in terms of elephants and then to talk about men because so many of the things that we're throwing at men are really just distractions. They're just diversions. What is not being given to men is examples of virtuous, strong, courageous masculinity for them to conform to or to pattern themselves off of or for them to look to and say, ha, see, maybe I'm not there yet, but that guy, that guy I like, that guy I respect, that guy proves and demonstrates that it is possible. And what's interesting too about Joshua, going back to Joshua chapter 10, What starts with God telling Joshua to be very strong and courageous, sure enough, ripples out to Joshua, in turn, telling the elders of Israel, be strong and courageous. What starts with God telling Joshua, do not be afraid, results in Joshua then telling the elders of Israel, do not be afraid. What will trickle out, what will ripple out from those elders to the chiefs of clans and the heads of fathers' households. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. 
It's not just Joshua who's supposed to be strong and courageous, and it's not just for a brief period of time. No, it's men at all times should be strong and courageous. Why? Because we have positive work to do. There's a positive vision of men, but then herein lies our problem when men don't look to God as their ultimate example and their ultimate source of authority. Even older men are little to no better than these teenage elephants. Yes, they may have size, strength. They might be very impressive. Also, they may be very destructive, very unruly. When we are getting it from God, that here's the positive vision. Here's what you should do with all that strength. Here's what you should do with all that size that you have greater than the women and the children. Get married. Have sons and daughters. Train up your sons and your daughters in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Train them up in the way that they should go. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it meaning exercise dominion over it, which is to say the planet is not to assert dominance over you. You're supposed to assert dominance over the planet. Steward it, keep it, tend it, maintain it. Don't be ruled by it. You rule it. Also, it's entirely appropriate for you to work, to earn, to save, to get your own brass ring, to get your own house with your own land, to have your own tools, to have your own furniture, to have your own food, your own water, It's totally appropriate because that is what you need. And God knows what you need. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you, Jesus says. When we do that, we have a framework for being able to control ourselves. Not be dominated, manipulated, distracted, oversaturated with temporary diversions and entertainments. No, no. We have the ability to control ourselves and to channel our energies in a way that is honorable, good, upright, decent, and will come with a blessing. Next up, briefly, let's talk about a story from July 28th. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but it's still pertinent and important for you to think about in relation to the story I was just telling you about of the elephants in South Africa. Also, what we will be getting into with Letter to the American Church. Chris Enlow published a report July 28th about McCarthy and Swalwell engaged in threat-filled, heated moment after Schiff's censure. If you don't know the backstory, basically, Adam Schiff is a dishonest used car salesman He is a spider. He is a snake in the grass. He is someone who has dishonored his oath of office and he has dishonored the American people by his engagement on various issues. And he was here recently censured, officially rebuked. It was put on the record. It is now a matter of record that he has been censured. But Adam Schiff is a Democrat from California, and the other Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives were, shall we say, not pleased about this. 
I'll play for you cut one of what it sounded like as it was being declared, as it was being announced by Kevin McCarthy, House Speaker, also from California, but a Republican. And then we'll talk briefly about the heated back and forth between Kevin McCarthy and Eric Swalwell, which followed shortly after the announcement of censure. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. The A's are 213 and the nays are 209. With six answering present, the resolution adopted. Without objection, the motion to consider is relayed on the table. House will be in order. Okay, I'll stop right there. This goes on for some time. The full video tweeted out by C-SPAN on June 21st is just shy of six minutes long. But in the video, if you watch the video, you can see here are all of these Democrats down at the front like this is a protest. And what do you hear them chanting? Shame. Shame, 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 shame. Why are they chanting shame? Not because Adam Schiff, Democrat from California, should be ashamed of conducting shoddy investigations into former President Donald Trump when he was chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. No, no, not that he should be ashamed of having abused his access to highly classified and sensitive intelligence, according to critics, ultimately weaponizing his access against political enemies. No, no. What they believe is shameful here is that Adam Schiff is being censured. And primarily, they believe that this is shameful because they approve of what Adam Schiff did. And if you ask me, they should all be censured for agreeing with it, for affirming it. Shame on them. But what you'll see in the video, if you watch the video, is Eric Swalwell, Democrat, also from California, yelling at Kevin McCarthy, who is behind the podium on the dais, pounding the gavel, calling for order. What he yells at Kevin McCarthy at one point is, you're a weak man. You are a weak man. Highly disrespectful. A taunt. Provocation. Well, reportedly, they got nose to nose not long after this. In the holes, Away from cameras, they got nose to nose, and it was just about a fist fight. It was almost a fist fight. One of those moments where somebody's going to have to blink or else there's going to be 
physical violence and some profanity was communicated back and forth, still more blatant disrespect from Eric Swalwell towards Kevin McCarthy at a threat. You call me that again from McCarthy reportedly. You call me that again and I'll kick your ass. And what did Swalwell do? He called him what he called him again. Part of the reason I bring this up is because this is where we're at in America right now. Prior to the first civil war, there was a famous, or should we say infamous instance of one elected representative caning another in the chamber with everyone else present, observing, watching. The result of that was a lengthy recovery for the one who was caned. Why was he caned? Because he had spoken out forcefully against the institution of slavery in the South. Who was he caned by? A supposed Southern gentleman who was defending Southern honor. How did the Democrats in that case respond? And yes, they were the Democrats. They made up these little pendants of a cane to wear as a symbol that will do the same to you that we did to him. Yeah, you know how he is still licking his wounds? How he, the one we beat with a cane for all to see? Yeah, you know how he is going to have PTSD for the rest of his life? Yeah, that could be any one of you. Watch what you say. Watch your mouth. And then what did we have? We had a civil war because the language failed. It was not possible to reason with one another and it all descended into, call me that again and I'll kick your ass. Are we going to do this? Are we really going to do this? Yeah, apparently we are. What interrupts that? The kind of thinking that says, I want to be on God's side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. That's what interrupts such eventualities. But if one side wants to be on God's side and the other side loves darkness, loves what is wicked, it's not possible. It's not possible to be peaceable with all men. As much as depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men. It doesn't all depend on you. And yet we should seek peace and pursue it. This is part of the reason why we have launched the Ecclesia Forum. The night before last was our first forum. We hope to have many more. We hope to encourage other Christians all across the U.S. to similarly start up their own local Ecclesia Forums. This is the Welfare of the City Project we've been working on, discussing, deliberating, planning since the beginning of the year. We have to learn how to talk peaceably with one another. If we can't say a peaceable word, then we're not going to be able to actually live peaceably. We're going to have a bad time of it. We're going to have violence. Not just will someone get hurt, we'll have another civil war on our hands before we know it. And it can't be one side is always compromising, giving the other side concessions, what they want. The other side just pushes, 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 won't listen, assassinates character. No, but will both sides want what is good and what is true objectively? What is good? Will both sides be willing to honor what God says? That will be the decisive factor here. Last up, though, in our current events coverage, commentary, sharing and caring 
feeling and healing session this episode. Peter Ducey reveals what the White House did after Biden scolded him, according to reporting by Virginia Cruda over at the Daily Wire. Ducey approached the president during an appearance in New Mexico as Biden travels to tout Bidenomics, so-called, and the climate provisions that were part of his signature Inflation Reduction Act when asked about recent reports concerning his apparent interaction with his son Hunter Biden's foreign business partners. Here it is, the last audio clip I'll play for you in this episode. Cut to, this is what that sounded like between Peter Ducey and Joe Biden. Take a listen. There's this testimony now where one of your son's former business associates is claiming that you were on speakerphone a lot with them, talking business. Is that what? I never talked business in anybody. And I, I know you'd have a lousy question. Well, what do you, it's, why is that a lousy question? Because it's not true. Okay, so there you go. That was the exchange. It's a lousy question. I knew you'd ask a lousy question. Why is it a lousy question? Because it's not true. Well, wait a second. What's not true? Come back, right? What's not true? Why is that such a hard conversation to have? Riddle me that. Jonathan Turley tweets out, Biden snapped at Peter Ducey yesterday for asking about his roughly 20 speakerphone calls to dinners or meetings with his son's foreign associates. However, in my view, what was most interesting is what came next. Ducey said that the White House called him as soon as he made it to his car to refute the specifics of the allegations on discussing business. The use of White House staff to repeat these positions could magnify the problems for Biden. That is the commentary from Jonathan Turley, American libertarian attorney, legal scholar, writer, commentator, legal analyst in broadcast and print journalism, according to Wikipedia also a professor at George Washington University Law School who has testified to Congress about constitutional and statutory issues, born Chicago, Illinois, in case you're curious. (laughs) Now, about this, you have a very real, very cogent, very relevant, very much our business concern that Perhaps just possibly Joe Biden, who has been in public office, supposedly a public servant for decades, Joe Biden was selling access to himself through his son, through his brothers, to foreign individuals, foreign institutions, foreign government agencies in some cases. There was a great deal of money exchanged And if there were 20 calls, if there were 20 calls, that's kind of a big deal. If the White House staff called Peter Ducey as he was on his way out, on his way home from this event after questioning the president, if the White House staff called him to set the record straight, what is that? What is that? Why can't Joe Biden talk with the press without being dismissive and showing open contempt for questions that are off the cuff. If he is so fit mentally, physically for another term, why do all of the questions have to be submitted in writing ahead of time in order for someone to be called on by Karine Jean-Pierre? Why 
if he is so fit for office and if there is no actual impropriety, why doesn't he care more about the appearance of impropriety, which is indisputable? The impropriety precedes his cognitive decline, his physical decline, but you can't just say, oh, he's tired, right? He's busy. Busy doing what? What is he so busy doing that he can't address this in the interest of being able to assure the American people, hey, yes, you can vote for me. Let me explain. Here's what actually happened. Here's the deal, man. Here's the situation. Listen, man, come on, man. Why can't he answer these things? Why can't he speak to these things? Why can't he be respectful towards an outlet that is hostile? As a conservative myself, as an independent, but philosophically, personally, a conservative in many ways in the Burkean mold, I think even if a media agency is obviously hostile to me, I still want to be polite. I want to be firm, but I also want to be polite. And if there's nothing to hide, isn't that what we're always being told to excuse surveillance, the possibility that all of our private communications, our web browsing history, our reading lists, our purchases could be assessed and evaluated by intelligence agencies in the interest of national security and the greater good? Isn't that what we're always being told? If you don't have anything to hide, you shouldn't be all that worried about it. But then when it applies to the bureaucrats themselves, when it applies to career politicians like Joe Biden, well, he's a busy man. Yeah, I'm a busy man too. This is not okay. This is not acceptable behavior. And then to enlist the White House staff to actually call Peter Ducey and explain to him on his way back to the vehicle, here's what it is. That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. What makes it a lousy question, Ducey asks, because it's not true. That's not even grammatically correct, by the way. But he can't be bothered because he's either too old or too tired or he's too corrupt because it's not true. Now, if Ducey had asked, why is it a lousy question? Then because it's not true would be the grammatically correct kind of an answer. But of course, he can't be bothered because he's either too old or he's too tired or he's too corrupt. And these kinds of questions and answers could come back to haunt him very shortly and his extended family very shortly and his donors and benefactors very shortly. And with so much appearance of impropriety surrounding this president, how is this the best we can do that Peter Ducey ambushes him and says, Mr. President, how is that the best we can do? Why is there not greater accountability coming from the rest of our elected representatives? Very simply, one, because the Democrats run interference for Joe Biden. And on the other hand, Republicans, if they have the gumption, are assassinated character-wise in the court of public opinion by the media anytime they start looking into these kinds of things by the corporate news media who also run interference for Joe Biden. It's a very curious thing, which also has all manner of appearance of impropriety around it. And whatever you think the reason is, whatever you think the explanation is for why these things just happen to, just so happen to not be all that interesting, but yet 
the barest, slimmest, narrowest of justification for suspicion regarding former President Donald Trump is reason to indict him once, twice, three, four times in an election cycle. Well, due process and all that. Equal protection and accountability before the law and all that. It's not true. It's not true. There are two sets of weights and measures, and we know that there are two sets of weights and measures, and why that's a problem we're going to talk about with respect to Eric Metaxa's book. So first off, a couple of disclaimers. With regards to Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas, this is not the first book I've read by him. It's not even the best book I've read by him in terms of quality writing or enjoyment, maybe more to the point. I did not enjoy this book as much as I enjoyed his work on Luther, for instance, or Bonhoeffer in particular. Let me just say that up front. His biography of Luther, his biography of Bonhoeffer, both set the bar very high. This is admittedly a shorter work. Bonhoeffer, pastor, martyr, prophet, spy, was 608 pages long in the hardcover copy, published 2010. Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world, published 2017, was 480 pages in the hardcover copy. An earlier work as well, if you can keep it, The Forgotten Promise of American Liberty, first published January 1st, 2016, 272 pages long. All of these are other works by this author I have read. All of them are significantly longer, even if you can keep it is nearly twice as long. But this book, published September 20th, 2022, is admittedly a more important work. And just because I didn't enjoy it as much, just because I may not have felt like it was as well written, that does not mean that it was a worse book. That does not mean that it is not worthy of your attention. And oh, by the way, can I just point out briefly, I have friends and family and connections on Goodreads who have either shelved the book about Bonhoeffer or they have read the book about Martin Luther. Nobody I know, on Goodreads at least, has read this book, but I make the first. And I want to encourage all of you do check out this book. Not because it's going to be the best written book you've ever read. Not because Eric Metaxas is so brilliant. Although I do like Eric. I used to be Facebook friends with him before he was really famous at a high level. I don't think he was famous at a high level anyways. Back when I first sent up a, a friend request and he accepted it. But not because he's so brilliant. Not because he's so likable. He is a smart guy. I do like him. But read this because... It's an appropriate question. It's an appropriate challenge to we who claim to be Christians in the United States right now. With where our country is right now, there are far too many of us who do resemble the German church 
as the Nazis were rising to power, we resemble them far too much. We make excuses, and the minority is made up of those Christians who say, this is wrong, this is profoundly wrong and untrue, and no, we will not modify our theology, we will not modify what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about God, to accommodate those who threaten our lives and our livelihoods if we disagree with them. No, 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 no. Those people make up the minority. And we, and I count myself in this minority, we are silenced online and in the public square. Our microphones are cut, we are pilloried, we are tried, and we are always found guilty without being able to speak for ourselves in our own defense and present the evidence to exonerate ourselves. We are always found guilty in the court of public opinion because the corporate news media, because the establishment political entities have decided the greater good is served by silencing us. And there are so many who claim to be Christians who pile on. They throw us to the wolves, and it is inexcusable. And someone has to ask the question, why are you allowing us to be thrown out of our jobs? Why are you allowing us to have our businesses destroyed, our livelihoods destroyed, our credibility destroyed? Why are you allowing us to have our reputations destroyed? We were your friends. We were your family. And you abandoned us and repent, repent of having sinned against us and sinned against God, more importantly, by flattering these lies that harm real flesh and blood, honest to God, men, women, and children created in God's image, disobedient to God, disobedient to the laws of God, to the commands of God, the promises of God, totally discordant with God's character, what he has revealed about himself in his word, presuming on his mercy and his kindness and his grace. And then at the last moment when you can't support any claim to his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his blessings, saying it's all lost and you'd best just be quiet now for a different reason, the stated reason being that it's over. Game over. We lost. We never should have wanted this country to prevail or continue to exist. We should never have wanted to prosper, to be able to provide for our families. We should never have aspired for our friends to be able to provide for their families, themselves, living freely. That was wicked. And you be quiet. You, you, you who make us feel naked. You who make us feel insecure and ashamed of ourselves. You be quiet and just go away and just admit that you were wrong. No, we weren't wrong. And you'll see before this is through that we were not wrong. Someone has to say the kinds of things that Eric Metaxas is saying. In letter to the American church, someone has to say, and someone has to listen when someone does the talking here and says, this has been done before. This song has been played before. I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. This is not ambiguous. I've said for years, it's remarkable. It is remarkable how the cowards who hide behind their supposedly Christian faith, how the cowards will say, no, I'm interested in the gospel. And they will find every opportunity to flatter and cajole and ingratiate themselves to the radical left, to pile on for conservatives 
maligning us, slandering us, abandoning us, and telling others to do likewise. Why? Because they have institutional power and authority. Why do they have it? Because those who had it to give regarded them as safe picks, safe options, with a ministry model that prioritized popularity in lieu of faithfulness in all too many cases. The seeker-friendly movement said, let's have those who are palatable to the godless be the ones to talk with the godless. And the problem with that is what you get is a form of godliness, all the while denying the power of God, the authority of God to command, obey, believe, say what I tell you to say, do what I tell you to do. God has that authority. The seeker-friendly movement forgot it if they ever knew it in the first place because they wanted to be relevant. What if the most relevant thing in the world would be for us to be calling one another to repentance and repenting ourselves? What if the most relevant thing actually would be, instead of flattering, instead of a group therapy session, the church was looking back at previous mistakes made in the not-so-distant past, and saying, hey, we need to compare this against what God's word says, what God says. Just think back over the last several years when the church in America, in the mainstream, has tended to do anything like this. How often is it anything other than a therapy session full of navel-gazing, all about you, all about your feelings, how do you feel? The delivery is obsessed with how you feel, ginning up certain emotions, or in other cases, how often is the presentation of Christianity anything other than let's look back on history and let's throw rocks at those who lived a long time ago so as to make sure we have distanced ourselves from them. Because This or that is what the mainstream, corporate media, leftist academia, pop culture has decided to be against next or to be for next. What I mean is not Eric Metaxas talking about Martin Luther and being honest. I've read his biography of Martin Luther, and it's very honest. It's not all good things. It's not all praise. There is criticism of Martin Luther. But it's not criticism to the purpose of deconstructing Christianity or destroying any respect you might have, any admiration you might have for Martin Luther. It's honest presentation of this man with his flaws and with his fairly good qualities, actually. Commendable legacy, actually. It's not all commendable, but it's definitely not all bad, awful. And yet, so much of mainstream Christianity has seemed to veer off into therapy sessions. Hey, let's talk about father wounds historically. Not your father, always necessarily, but we'll talk forefathers of Western civilization or church history. Let's talk about father wounds or the equivalent of father wounds with Christians who lived hundreds of years ago or people who claim to be Christians who lived hundreds of years ago. Let's talk about the equivalent of father wounds and how we need to heal 
those father wounds, those ways that these forebearers let us down, disappointed us. Or on the flip side, it's God has a wonderful plan for your life, full stop. Yeah, does this wonderful plan involve my pursuing righteousness and obedience, believing his word? Does it involve my turning away from sin, turning away from falsehood, turning away from partiality? Or are you actually showing a great deal of partiality, even just in the way that you present this message? And what I mean by that is when you hold up a book like this, Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas, yes, there are references to previous generations of Americans. And yes, there is some sensitivity to how do you feel? How are you doing emotionally, mentally, spiritually? That's good. How are you doing? However, how are you feeling? However, is a secondary question to where are we headed in relation to God? There have been a number of books I've read in the past year to two years that have been uncomfortable for me. I haven't enjoyed them per se. I'm glad I read them, but I haven't enjoyed them per se. I didn't like them or I wouldn't put it that way. And yet, as I come away from them, it occurs to me that that needed to be said. That was correct. That was a corrective. If I would listen to it, if I would hear it, I would be more correct. Letter to the American Church is a book like that. I come away thinking, we need to hear this. It's not just trivia. That's the point. If we are going to read a biography of Bonhoeffer, it had best not be escapism. And yet for a lot of us academic types, I think it is. I think it is escapism. We're not going and delving into the treasure trove of previous generations of Christians to pull out something that we can then make use of in the present, in our circumstance, in our context, that we can remind others of in our context so that we do the courageous thing, we do the brave thing, we do the faithful thing, we do the loving thing towards God, the loving thing towards our neighbor. No, no, we're LARPing too many of us. When we delve as far back as 500 years ago, which is as far back as most of us go, actually, if we delve into church history 500 years ago, around about the time of the Protestant Reformation, that's about as far as we go. A lot of us don't go back to 1000 AD, 500 AD, but we go back 500 years and we think, yeah, that's probably it. That's probably enough distance. That's probably a safe amount of psychological distance to put between me and these truths or between these truths and anything I would do about it. Here's the question, right? The question you should be asking yourself when you read a book about Martin Luther is, is there a corollary today? Is there an equivalent functionally today to how the... Roman Catholic Church was relating and behaving in Luther's time. Is there an equivalent? What is the equivalent? Maybe it's not the selling of indulgences, which is to say, get out of jail free cards to sinners who would donate money to the church for the erection of cathedrals, for the lavish lifestyle of political appointees in the church, bishops and cardinals, and yes, even the Pope himself. 
maybe we don't do indulgences, but then we kind of do actually with carbon credits. Maybe we don't do the penance thing, but then we kind of do actually with DEI, diversity, equity, inclusivity training. See, this is the point, right? The point is, if we're reading these books, there should be something that we carry forward to the present, but very often it's escapism and it is not faithfulness. We go back to looking at Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany and we think, oh, isn't that interesting? And then round about the time that we would draw some important lessons that are relevant to, oh, I don't know, a time when husbands and fathers are being thrown out of work, having their mics cut when they speak at a school board meeting, being put on a terrorist watch list. If they start organizing other parents in their community to remove school board members to affect change in the leadership in their city council or their state legislature, the governorship, the courthouses. If we would come forward from Bonhoeffer's day, from Luther's day to the present with lessons to apply actively, well, that would be something, right? That would be great. And that's what Eric Metaxas is obviously trying to get us to do and trying to encourage us to do. And he's trying to be restrained and self-controlled, but he is barely containing an overflow of frustration with so many Christians, so-called, so many pastors, so-called, in America who want to play nicey-nice and they don't want to be obedient. They're not playing nice with God, but they are going to play nice with this zeitgeist, just like the majority of pastors in the German church did as the Nazis were co-opting Christianity to promote national socialism. Here's the write-up, just so we actually have a little bit from the book itself, besides my telling you what I think. Goodreads.com puts it this way. In an earnest and searing wake-up call, the author of the bestseller, Pastor Martyr, Prophet Spy warns of the haunting similarities between today's American church and the German church of the 1930s. Echoing Bonhoeffer's prophetic call, Eric Metaxas exhorts his fellow Christians to repent of their silence in the face of evil before it's too late. Something interesting to me, Bonhoeffer's biography written by Eric Metaxas, with a foreword by Tim Keller, by the way. I wonder if that's regretted at this point. Bonhoeffer, pastor, martyr, prophet, spy, 71,887 ratings, published 2010, so it's been out there for 14 years, but nearly 72,000 ratings. Not all books are equally popular, equally resonant. Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce, 8,341 ratings. Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world, 7,463 ratings, published 2017, that one, by the way. The Wilberforce book was published 2007, so it's been out even longer than the Bonhoeffer work. But then we get down to Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness, Seven Women and the Secret of Their Greatness, a couple of works that Metaxas wrote with short biographies. I haven't read either of those. Then... If You Can Keep It, 2,369 ratings, published 
2016. Letter to the American Church is right now sitting at 1,376 ratings. And again, as I said, published around about a year ago. What I find so interesting is the same guy we will trust to tell us about Bonhoeffer or Wilberforce or Martin Luther, when he starts turning his attention from 100 years ago in Germany, 500 years ago in Germany, a couple hundred years ago in England, when he turns his attention from all of that to our context, you know, what we might do with this information. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's so many books to read. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe I'll read that. Probably not. Pro- probably not. I hate to say this. I really do. Because I like to joke and I like to be entertaining on occasion. Every now and then I think I am rather amusing and I amuse myself anyways. But there's a deep and abiding frustration I feel at realizing a lot of folks want the trappings of Christianity. They want it to feel like they can have their cake and eat it too. They can feel like this or that message was so good and super convicting, right? That's exactly the phrase I've heard so many times, so good and super convicting, said of conferences and workshops and Bible studies and Sunday school lessons and sermons and books and movies, so good and super convicting. Yeah, was the point to just be convicted and then go right back to living however you want to live? Or are you going to, at a certain point, actually stop sinning by God's grace? Are you going to actually, at a certain point, start obeying God by God's grace? Oh, yeah. Maybe that's enough, Garrett, for today, you think to yourself. I think a lot of us enjoy some of the feelings that we associate with conviction, and we have grown accustomed to feeling conviction and actually not repenting, not confessing anything in particular. I mean, realize this. The next time you hear somebody saying, this or that was so convicting, if they don't follow up with what specific sin and bad attitude in their own lives they have just now realized falls short of God's purpose for them, God's call on their lives, what God has commanded, what he's promised, what he wants. If they don't follow up with a specific accounting of what they are convicted about, that they are going to try by God's grace to stop doing, or they are going to try to start doing that they haven't been doing, it could be that they're just saying that to fit in because that's what's expected. It's expected that they would say it's so good and super convicting. It's like open sesame. It's the secret passphrase. And do they mean it? Oh, but if you ask that, now you're being unkind. Now you're being mean. And what we mean by that in all too many cases in the church is, in the American church is, wait, 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 wait. You're asking me to feel conviction that I would actually have to do something about. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You like conviction when you can go on your merry way and say grace, grace, but it's cheap grace. You like conviction in that case. But if somebody would say, what specifically 
you should feel convicted about. And watch and observe to see whether you keep on doing that thing. And if you do continue doing that thing, they would say, all right, you know what? If that's how you're going to be, just leave me alone. I, I can't even be around you right now. We would say, oh, that's so harsh. That's not loving people the way God loves people. Yes, it's exactly how God loves people. Now, this is part of what's so frustrating to me about this situation up in Billings, Montana, with one elder in particular who led the charge in church disciplining out an older man. He's a young pastor, but he church disciplined out with the acquiescence of his two co-elders. Church disciplined out an older man in the church. Why? Not because there was any observed sin, but because this older man in the church, when told, don't ever talk about this topic again that we were just getting into, that I brought up, (laughs) don't ever talk about that again and what the Bible says because you disagreed with me. And if you're not willing to commit to never talking about that again, to never never bringing it up again, never sharing your perspective on it again, well then, you're going to be removed from fellowship And we're going to tell your family, we're going to tell your longtime friends at this church and in the community, we're not even sure you're even a Christian. What's so disturbing about that is the misapplication of church discipline in that case. The abuse of church discipline actually makes it less likely that church discipline will be applied correctly in situations where there is actually sin clear sin is being committed or a sinful lifestyle is being embraced openly, brazenly, unrepentantly. But then that's also, I think, part of why you have a much lower appetite among Eric Metaxas readers for If You Can Keep It, which was published 2016, or Letter to the American Church, published just last year. There's a much lower appetite compared with a biography of Bonhoeffer or Wilberforce or Luther, because the more you bring these things forward to the present, the less discretionary budget the tastemakers in the church in America who style themselves as conservatives have, the less it's just however you find it most convenient for your vision of the Christian life. Yeah, do that. That's what's so disturbing about the example of the church disciplining out of an older man in Billings, Montana. This younger pastor was the one who brought up polygamy in the Old Testament. He's the one who brought up the claim that was not true, that Jesus changed the definition of adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, Jesus was modifying the definition of adultery. And oh, by the way, yes, Jesus... When he was talking about adultery, he was talking about even young unmarried men looking with interest at young unmarried women. And so this older man who was present spoke up and he said, well, that's not correct, actually. And then a debate ensued. Consider this, consider this, consider this. This younger pastor, tall, dark, handsome, well-built, athletic, having been the team captain for Montana State's football team, A few years ago, growing up in Billings, playing high school football in Billings, very clearly felt threatened and was not accustomed to anyone saying, no, that's not correct. No, that's not right. He was used to, to that point in his life, 
people stepping aside, averting their eyes, saying, yes, quite right. In this case, having an older man in the church say, not so fast. Ooh, that rankled him. So emails ensue. He's emailing this older man in the church with the other elders copied, who never chime in, by the way, which is very interesting, very odd, that the other elders are always copied. They're copied on every single email back and forth. They don't chime in a single solitary time. It's always this one young pastor. Again, tall, dark, handsome, well-built, hometown hero, football star, at first affirming, polite, respectful, kind of, but then not really, because the whole reason he was emailing in the first place, it becomes clear, is he's trying to even the score. He's trying to get back at this older man who, as he sees it, just challenged his authority for all the other men in the church to see. Now, never mind, as it developed, as the back and forth continued over the course of months, never mind that he admitted, you're right, I did further study on this. You're right about the definition of adultery biblically. You're right, actually, also, with regards to Jesus not changing the definition of adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. You're right about those things, And you're right that when Jesus is talking about adultery, it wouldn't be appropriate to apply that in a one-to-one ratio to young unmarried men, young unmarried women having an interest in one another, being attracted to one another. But still, moving forward, I want you to raise your hand and ask short, concise, respectful questions and not debate me. Talk with me privately if you have any concerns, if I'm saying anything that's not quite true. Well, yeah, but see how that went? (laughs) See how that is going? That you're having this conversation privately because next thing you know, weeks go by and the rudeness meets with the busy holiday season and there's a delay and this young pastor gets impatient and the next thing you know, he is ordering, he is commanding this older man in the church, don't ever bring this up again. We find your position on polygamy in the Bible, polygyny, one man having multiple wives in the Bible, to be contrary to sound doctrine. Our church's doctrinal statement for one thing, biblical doctrine for another thing. What was his stance? His stance was, unless God explicitly said, thou shalt not, far be it from us, to retroactively declare sins what God never declared were sins. And why this is so important, why we should appreciate the importance of this and why it's not no big deal is because there are people right now who are trying to categorize you driving from home to church in a vehicle that runs on fossil fuels, diesel or gasoline. There are people who are trying to argue that it is sinful for young people to get married and have kids because we need to lower humanity's carbon footprint and environmental impact. You have people who are trying to portray calling someone to repentance, calling them out of homosexual lifestyles, transgenderism, not homosexuality being regarded as a sin, not transgenderism being a sin, but to call someone to repent of, to turn away from, Homosexuality and transgenderism is what is being 
called a sin. It is being called a sin, regarded as sin, related to as sin, to call somebody to repent of sin, if it's of those two types, those varieties. Whether we are reading the biblical text for what it says, or we are taking liberties in declaring sin, what God never declared a sin, is absolutely the other side of the coin for whether we are going to call people to repent of the sins that God actually says are abominations to him. I mean, it's a very curious thing. If the charge against an older man in the church would be, he was being contentious. I'm sorry, who brought up the topic in the adult men's Sunday school on a Sunday morning and proceeded to speak ignorantly about these things and not rightly handle the truth? Who was it that was doing that? Oh yeah, it was you. Maybe you should church discipline yourself out. You're the one who brought it up. No, but he was being contentious. I'm sorry. Who emailed whom? Wasn't it you? Young, tall, dark, handsome, well-built pastor from the best school, from masters, no less, captain of MSU's football team. Wasn't it you who emailed him? Wasn't it you who escalated it? Wasn't it you who failed to speak with an older man, as you would a father, respectfully encouraging him. You gave him advice. And then when he said, okay, yep, I will consider your advice. Thank you. You weren't content. And so you just kept pushing. You kept pushing because at the end of the day, what you wanted is exactly what you got. And you were trying to support. You were trying to defend your selfishness, your hostility, your vanity, your ambition. And this older man in the church was making you feel a bit nervous. You were under conviction, but your response to conviction was to remove the source because you want to be the source of conviction. Men like that, pastors like that, churches like that are exactly why we need books like this, Letter to the American Church. We need older men in the church to be teaching the younger men, and not just the younger men who've gone off to seminary, coming back, thinking, aha, aha, I've arrived, which this youngish pastor clearly thinks. He clearly thinks he's arrived. He lacks humility. He's full of selfish ambition and vain conceit, and he's acting it out, jealous that someone else would have a correction and that he himself might need to be corrected It's his fault that he mishandled the truth. It's not this older man in the church's fault that the young man mishandled the truth. But you know what this reminds me of too? It reminds me of the story from BBC Earth of the young elephants running amok, goring rhinoceroses. 50 rhinoceroses found dead, their carcasses riddled with holes in the necks and the underbellies where they had been gored by these young teenage bull elephants. Imagine if those teenage elephants, those young teenage bull elephants had been able to take a vote on whether these six larger, more mature bull elephants would be allowed to stay in the national park. What do you think they would have voted? Uh, No. This is the other side of the coin to what the progressives are doing with taking liberties presumptuously approaching the biblical text. You're not supposed to stray to the right or to the left 
when you come to the biblical text. You're not supposed to add or subtract. The progressives like to subtract. They like to subtract until they have got just the parts that make them feel good about themselves. Giving them permission. Looking the other way. Affirming their sin. When God has clearly said, don't do this, they say, yeah, we think that's a mistranslation. When God says, do this other thing, they say, yeah, that was for then. That was the context historically, but it doesn't apply to today. No. Those who style themselves conservatives and reactionaries against the progressives very often make the same kind of a presumptuous error, if not sin, when they add to the biblical text. They read the biblical text and then they say, ah, you know what? Let's go a step farther. Let's be even more strict. We're going to be even more strict than God is here and tell you, you can't do this, 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 and you can't say such and such. And if they're authoritarian about it, and if the feelings that they want to feel or that they're accustomed to their constituents wanting to feel are conviction, well, they can make conviction possible by seeing in every behavior, however legitimate, every action, however worthy, every assertion, however valid, sin. So long as they said, don't do that. As long as they said, don't say that. Then they can tie it all back to, I'm in authority. Submit. Yeah, what if you being in authority is actually supposed to be for the purpose of rewarding those who do what is good? And you don't believe that there is anything good anybody can do? Not really truly, not unless it was your idea. And what if rewarding those who do what is good would include thanking, like a wise man, thanking someone who corrects you, maybe all the more if you really do love these people and you don't want them to be caught up in an error that you communicated? What if you thank them publicly, just like they corrected you publicly, and thereby you set the example if what you really want is God's glory? Is God not glorified if you say something that's not true and you're corrected? Shouldn't you be glad that God would be glorified in your being corrected publicly? The tell for whether these characters who claim to be the vanguard, they claim to be the watchman on the wall, is how do they respond when they were not correct and they are corrected publicly? Do they respond with joy and gratitude or with hostility? Do they bristle? Don't ever do that again. I don't want to repeat of what happened in Sunday school last Sunday. By their fruit, you will know them. By our fruit, future generations of saints, if the world stands, God willing, we live and do this or that, but future generations of saints will know us by our fruits. And that's why the numbers need to be more even. How many of us read about Bonhoeffer and how many of us read the follow-on about what we need to be applying in the way of lessons learned to our current moment? Otherwise, it's escapism. It's LARPing. It's taking liberties with the text to add to, just as bad as taking liberties with the text to subtract from, until we only have the parts that we like, like picking out the marshmallows. Yeah, not so good. Don't do that. Also not so good is when you say, I'm going to put whatever I want into the cereal until it's disgusting and gross and you won't possibly be appetized by it. And then I'm going to tell you, you have to eat that. 
quietly without complaint or else I'll punish you. I'll humiliate you. I'll destroy your good name. For all of the people you care most about, who had the most respect for you, to look at you with contempt. I'll show you. I'll get back at you. Yeah, I don't like the way you made me feel. So I'm going to give you even worse. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of treatment. We need to recognize we have business to attend to in the church today. In America, if we are Americans, we have business that is our business by God, and it won't wait. Our delay in doing the good that we know we ought to do is sin, and we should repent of it. And we should listen to those who call us to repent of our neglect, our apathy, our indifference, our selfishness, our vanity, our ambitions. We should listen to voices like that of Eric Metaxas in Letter to the American Church. Now, in closing, one final parting remark for this episode. My previous recording I had titled, All Warfare is Deception and the Other Side of Being as Wise as Serpents, I published it on the 14th, that is the day before yesterday. Something happened. Something happened to the audio. I must have mashed some keys or stepped away for a moment and maybe my one going on two-year-old came up and slapped the mouse or something. I don't know. But there was an echo the whole way through. The whole recording was just echoes and I made the mistake. I saved the project in Audacity, and then I closed out of Audacity before reviewing my episode. And I thought about leaving it. It was an hour and 26 minutes, 49 seconds of content. I talked through Joshua chapter 9. I talked through a number of other pieces of news and current events. And I thought the episode was pretty good, honestly. But that echo, I just thought to myself, people are going to listen to this and they're going to think Garrett has lost his mind. He has well and truly lost it. And so I took it down. I deleted it. You'll notice a gap. This is actually, as a matter of fact, episode 161 of this podcast. 160 is on my hard drive, but not public. And that is to say, I want to be kind and considerate of you. I do want to be careful of my reputation within reason. I don't want to be putting out bad quality sound, and then telling you, ah, just deal with it. A little folly mixed in with wisdom is like a fly in the ointment. Got to get it out of there if you're going to do anything, certainly food-related with that oil, at least if you care about the people you're serving the food to, if you respect them. So out of respect for you, my audience, I took it down. My apologies, my mistake. Moving forward, what I should do is I should save the project to my hard drive and then just leave it up. Leave it up until I've had a chance to listen back through the entire episode. And then if I need to edit something, well, so be it. Some of that I can do. Removing an echo, I can't do in Spotify for podcasters, web-based, browser-based tools. And Audacity too. I looked it up. I tried researching. Oh, is there an Is there any way, once you've saved a project in Audacity and closed it, and Audacity is the software I use for recording and editing, is there any way to go back and remove effects accidentally applied to audio? And the consensus online was, no, it's not possible. Can't do it. So that's unfortunate, right? But part of the reason I bring it up, part of the reason I tell you about it 
is because sometimes it's as simple as that. Little things like that, that it was an honest mistake. It was unintentional. Whoops. Just take the loss and move on to doing something better. Learn from it. Move forward. He gives more grace. It's not the end of the world, but you can make those kinds of things actually a lot worse mistakes if you refuse to admit that they were mistakes. Some food for thought. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.